join me, if you will, in 2 Peter. Uh, that would be great. Uh, I would appreciate it. 2 Peter chapter 1. We will wrap up 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, today. And man, I'm just excited about what the Lord has for us in His Word um, as we unpack this together. And as you're turning there, again, I want to remind you, if you've not been with us, we have been walking together collectively uh, through 2 Peter. Uh, this is a, a word of encouragement uh, for us today as we read Peter's words, as we find out from Peter uh, what it is that he wishes to do with the faithful believers. We know already from the past several weeks that we've been together in this letter that Peter is seeking to encourage the faithful believers who are experiencing persecution, but not just uh, persecution from folks outside of the church, but now they have people who claim to be believers in Christ coming into the church, and they are declaring a false doctrine. And so they have been dubbed false teachers, and so now they are, they are coming in seeking uh, to ruin the effectiveness and the ministry of the gospel and God's church and the work that they have now been called to. And as we've already seen before, uh, Peter, in our text today, is going to use repetition again in order to encourage the local church. And so here is Peter's goal for our text this morning. Peter's goal through his writing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 through 21, is to remind the believers of the certainty of Christ's return in order to encourage them to continue in godly living. Okay, so I'm going to repeat that again. Peter's goal for our text is to remind the believers of the certainty of Christ's return in order to encourage them to continue in godly living. So let me say, if you have a little one that's taking notes today and you're looking for words for them, the tally mark, uh, Jesus is a good word, Christ, the return, um, source, significance is a good word, witness, word, a lot of these words are going to be repeated today. So if you've got a little one, uh, jot down a few of those words and that will help them out. Now, not to, uh, to come back to our text, not to rehash a point or try to insult anybody's intelligence in the room, if you will, but we are now back at a point that we've actually already talked about um, over the past several weeks, which is where Peter is teaching the church the value of repetition. Now, again, I recognize that repetition can be awkward. It can be awkward to kind of hear the same message repeated over and over and over again. I recognize that repetition can be very frustrating because we think we've understood the point and we've grasped the point, and so we are ready to move forward. And so what can happen as we hear messages of repetition, we begin to think, well, why are we not moving further and forward in the text? However, what I'm hoping that we will see today as we listen to Peter's words again, I'm hoping that we'll see that repetition can actually be very good for us as believers because it helps us to remember, and not just remember, but it helps us to create a practice where things that we should know to be true are actually second nature for us. You see, when we practice repetition, it allows us to learn skills that when repeated, practiced and repeatedly and repeated over and over and over again, these skills can actually become second nature for us. Now, to give you a, a modern day example of what I'm talking about, how many of you guys remember the 2013 Super Bowl? You probably don't. 
Now, I acknowledge and recognize that many of us in this room are probably not sports fans, but let me, let me just give you a, a brief history lesson on what happened in the Super Bowl of 2013. You see, that Super Bowl was played against the 13-3 Denver Broncos versus the 13-3 Seattle Seahawks. Now, I'm not sure anybody in this room is a fan of either of those teams, which is probably why you didn't watch the game, okay, which makes total sense to me. But just stay with me for a moment because there is a, a point to what I'm about to tell you. You see, when you go back and look at that Super Bowl that year, the Broncos had the best offense in the league. They were unstoppable in terms of their offense and their scoring proficiency. In fact, they were led by future Hall of Famer Peyton Manning as their quarterback. Their playoffs were a cakewalk. They were beating teams soundly and with confidence, including a Tom Brady-led New England Patriots. Now, the Seattle Seahawks, on the other hand, had the best defense, the best defense in the league, yet they had to battle through every playoff game, barely winning the game. Some even wondered whether or not they were uh, the true NFC champion that year because of how poorly everybody thought they had played throughout that playoff run. So naturally, when it came to the, the 2013 Super Bowl, Seattle was the clear and present underdog in that game. In fact, Vegas had the majority of their bets going against Seattle in every possible way. Yet, when the game kicked off and as the game went on and the game concluded and the dust settled and the score was left on the scoreboard, it was Seattle who won the Super Bowl and they did so to the tune of 43-8. to It was one of the largest Super Bowl deficits in the history of the NFL. In fact, I believe it's the third largest. You see, the beating that Denver took that day wasn't just sound and definitive in its nature. You see, you need to understand that even before Denver scored eight, they were down 36 to nothing late in the third quarter. At that point, Seattle was subbing in their practice squad to give them a chance to play in the game. But here's what was interesting about the Super Bowl that year. After the game, when the interviews were, were taking place, two of the defensive players who would become legends within the game, one who won the MVP, linebacker Malcolm Smith, and his teammate, defensive back Richard Sherman, were actually asked, how did Seattle put together such a dominant performance against Peyton Manning and the number one offense in the NFL? And this is what they said. They said, we spent, as a defense, two weeks preparing for this Super Bowl. And every day we practiced the same two defensive plays until it was perfect. We only ran two plays on defense and it worked. The repetition of two plays over and over and over again for two weeks until it was perfected led a team to a championship. Now imagine for a moment what would it look like for us if we saw repetition in the way they did? Whereas instead of seeing repetition as being awkward or, or uncomfortable or unfulfilling, imagine what it would look like if we saw repetition as an opportunity to get better. What if we saw repetition as an opportunity to grow? What if we as believers saw repetition as an opportunity to find ourselves remaining faithful in confidence to what it is that God has called us to do. Well, this is actually Peter's point 
as he reminds the church in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. He reminds them to never forget Christ's return. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me now in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin reading together in verse 12. And once you have found your place in the Word, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now this is 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Peter writes, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, as we jump into this text, I want to set the scene for you, if I could. You see, Peter wanted the believers to remember that Jesus Christ was coming again. Now, you may not have heard that in this particular text, and we're going to talk more about where you will see this as we unpack this text. But I want us to notice that Peter didn't just want the believers to remember that Jesus was coming again as an entry point into theology, but rather to remember it for the purpose of growing in their own holiness. Notice in verse 12 that Peter begins by saying, therefore I intend always to remind you. And again in verse 16, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you. You see, Peter wanted to make sure that the believers knew that they had something that they could never afford to forget. In other words, for Peter, and going back to that Super Bowl illustration, he was giving them the perfect set of plays that had already been given to us by the sovereign will of God. You see, Peter knew that false teachers had now come into the church. And these false teachers were now mocking the idea that there was a powerful and heavenly Jesus Christ who could resource the people with all that they would ever need. And at the same time, these same false teachers scoffed at the notion that one day Jesus Christ would return. So in our text this morning, Peter shows the church both the significance of remembering, but he also shows them the source that will speak of the return of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at our own two plays that we need to remember again and again and again. And those plays call us to never forget Christ's return. Look again at verses 12 through 15. 
And here we see our first play, which is the significance of Christ's return. You see, here in this passage, Peter addresses rather indirectly the return of Jesus Christ. Again, if you were to read this casually in the text, you might have just glanced over it altogether. But if you read it again, you will begin to see what Peter's point was. You see, we know that Christ's return is clearly on Peter's mind because this passage literally links us back to what he's previously said back in verses 5 through 11, where Peter calls the believers to godly living because of their salvation and the hope of one day knowing that they will be reunited with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. In fact, Peter states three times in our passage, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 15, that he has every intention of repeating the spiritual truth of one day knowing that Jesus Christ will return. So Peter, in refuting the false teachers who were seeking to teach that there was no eternal kingdom and that Christ would not return, now uses this portion of our text uh, to not only remind the believers of Christ's return, but then in light of his return, to allow the truth of his return to stimulate passion, sustain godliness, and strengthen the resolve or the readiness of the local church. Verse 12, Peter says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Notice that Peter begins his passage by complimenting the believers by acknowledging that they are clearly genuine, mature believers because they can already firmly commit to the belief in Christ's return, and therefore they would not be easily persuaded by false teachers. However, this is Peter that's writing. Peter also knew from his own personal experience that just because someone is grounded in the truth doesn't mean that he or she would remain so. In fact, it was Peter who knew what it meant to be spiritually strong at one point and yet crash and burn at another. At the same time, he also knew what it meant to rise again in grace back to solid foundation and footing. You see, Peter understood that being reminded of the spiritual truth of Christ's return should and would sustain the godliness that is already present in our lives. In other words, for us today, being reminded of truths that we know because of repetition, it will build up godliness in our lives so that we continue to grow and not wither. You see, here's the truth that we have from Peter today. Yesterday's godliness and growth will not suffice for today if we are left unattended or undernourished. You see, Christian, we need gospel truth rehearsed in our minds. We need the truth of one day knowing that Jesus Christ will return rehearsed in our minds and rehearsed in our hearts so that we will not lapse into serious sin or even doctrinal error. True godliness will always be sustained when we remember gospel truth or else godliness will fade under the assault of false teaching. 
Looking back at the text in verses 13 and 14, Peter picks up on this theme, and not only the theme of Christ's return, but also the theme of his own frailty and the expedience of life. He says phrases like, as long as I'm in this body, and since I know the putting off of my body will be soon. You see, Peter at this point was convinced that he didn't have much time left. And he knew this because according to verse 14, he says, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, Peter in this moment was not seeking to focus on his own ending, nor was he desiring to say goodbye in this particular moment. But rather, what Peter was doing was he wanted the believers to understand that they were working within the framework of a small window when it comes to making the gospel known. Here's what I mean by that. In our own day, in whatever has happened today, did we wake up and realize that today we are one step closer to eternity? Did we wake up today and realize that we are one step closer to being with King Jesus for the rest of our days? Did we wake up, maybe this is a little more tangible, if you will. Did we wake up today realizing that we are another step closer to death, which then leads to eternal life? We are closer today than we were yesterday. So this leads Peter back to the text in verse 13 to say these words. He says, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. Now this phrase, stir you up, is a great phrase to underline in our Bibles because it also means to provoke. You see, Peter was seeking to provoke the believers to continue to seek and to prize the gospel in a fresh way. In fact, it was Thomas Schreiner who said of this particular point, he said, Peter hoped that his words would stab the believers awake so that they would reject what the opponents taught. Do you see what Peter is teaching us in these first few verses? He's literally saying to the Christians, wake up. Wake up, even if you believe you already know the gospel. Wake up because our passion for the gospel needs to be stimulated afresh every day. Wake up so that we can continue in godliness. Wake up so that we can deflect the fiery arrows of falsehood. Christian, wake up. Wake up fresh and renewed with the glorious wonder of the gospel, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming again. A promise that we have to look forward to. Continuing in the text in verse 15, Peter writes, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Again, Peter here speaks of his impending death, but this time he speaks also of how he will spend every ounce of his energy and being, all that he has left to make sure that the church remembers the gospel and remembers the return of Christ. Now notice this. This is for Peter, not just to recall the gospel, but rather to live with a gospel conscience so that we are always ready to deflect false teachers. Now, I think this is an important point for us today. You see, we have just lived through a pandemic, and whether you got the vaccine or not, that is your business. You are entitled to do what you believe is best for you. Okay, but in order to push the vaccine, notice what society gave us. It gave us a Christian command and said that you are to love your neighbor. 
So whether or not you got the vaccine or not, that is, that is up to you. But here's the problem. This is a wrong use of the command to love our neighbor. In fact, today in California, that very same command of loving your neighbor is being pushed in commercials and on billboards in order to endorse abortion. I mean, think about that for a moment. We are being told as a society that it is right for you to love your neighbor and thus allow them to murder the innocent life of another being. This is not okay. In fact, what I find troubling about the use of the love your neighbor command is it actually glazes over the primary command that's in that text that ultimately leads us to loving our neighbor, which is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Notice the point of that command. You can't love your neighbor the way God intends for you to love your neighbor until you first establish your love for God in every area of your life. In other words, according to the text, you don't know how to love your neighbor. I don't know how to love my neighbor if I don't first know how to love God with all that I am. You see, we can't simply glaze over a passage and just be able to say, yes, I know what I got it memorized without fully understanding or attempting to understand what it means. Now, coming back to the text, Peter didn't want the Christians to have intellectual recall of gospel truth in Christ's return. No, he wanted them to have the truth in their lives and that truth to then permeate every aspect of their lives. You see, this is important for us to hear today as Christians because it is possible to know gospel truth. It is possible to know of the return of Jesus Christ and yet never make those truths a vital part of our lives. It is possible today to remember that Jesus Christ died for your sins and yet never embrace this truth to help you overcome your sins or your future fears. It is possible today to remember that Jesus has called you to holiness. You can know that and yet never allow that holiness to grip your life and inspire your hands and feet to do the work that God has called you to. Do we see the significance of repetition? Do we see the significance of the word of God? Do we see the significance of Christ's return? Because if you do, the follow-up question is this. Does knowing the return of Christ, this, the return that is impending, it is coming, does it stimulate our passion to make Jesus known? Does it stimulate our passion to live the gospel in this world? Does it sustain our godliness? Do we see daily our need to grow according to the word of God? Does this stimulate or strengthen our resolve for the local church and to continue to serve Jesus Christ through the local church? Because if we can answer no to any of these questions, then brothers and sisters, I have to be honest with you, somewhere in our lives, truth is missing. And we're missing the point somewhere. 
do we see the significance of the return of Christ? Next, Peter gives us our second play in verses 16 through 21. He says to us that not only do we need to know the significance of Christ's return, but secondly, we need to know the source of Christ's return. In other words, how do we know? Now, you may be wondering why the source of Christ's return would actually be so important to the local church. Well, Peter's act, this is actually his point in verses 16 through 21. You see, Peter believed that the doctrinal truth of Christ's return and his coming glory was the most important truth that believers needed to be reminded of in this particular moment. You see, Christ's return provides both the greatest motivation and the highest accountability for believers growing in maturity and growing in godly living. As one scholar said, he said, living a godly life is optional, to say the least, if one's heavenly destiny is not involved. And so in Peter's day, false teachers were heavily attacking the premise of heaven. They were attacking the the premise of the return of Jesus Christ. So Peter in this moment reveals to the believers the source of what it is that he knows to be true. He says, listen, we know that Jesus Christ will return because we have sources for that. One are the witnesses and two is the word. Look at verses 16 and 18 and we find our witnesses. Notice here that Peter uses the backdrop of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ in order to confirm the accounts of Christ as well as to see that this transfiguration was not just a moment for Jesus to be glorified, but was also a foreshadowing of what would happen at the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, this moment that Peter speaks of in verse 16 and 18 is so important. We see it in Matthew 16, and again, it flows over to Matthew 17. We see it in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. So Peter recalls this event in order to directly defy the false teachers and remind the church of the anticipated return of Christ. You see, Peter wanted the church to know that they could be confident in the gospel truth of knowing that one day Jesus would return, according to verse 17, in honor and glory. So being an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus was something that the false teachers could not say about themselves. And yet here is Peter saying, I was there. In fact, Peter refutes the notion that the apostles were blind followers, which is what the false teachers were accusing them of. In fact, in verse 16, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Again, in verse 18, he says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter claims accurately that he has seen this moment with his own eyes and he heard it with his own ears. So as an eyewitness, Let's note for a moment what Peter teaches us about Jesus Christ at the moment of transfiguration. First, he teaches us that Jesus is coming in power. Verse 16, he says, when he made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this powerful coming not only speaks to the moment of transfiguration that Peter was a part of, but it also foreshadows the same way that Jesus Christ will return. He's going to return in power. Do we understand that? Too many people right now think that when Jesus returns, he's going to slip through the front doors of a church and kind of take a back seat uh, in the back row of a building and then just kind of say, hello there, I'm here. 
It's good to see you. That's not what's happening at all. Peter acknowledges what we see in the transfiguration. Is that just as in that moment that he was given power in that moment, and we see him ascend in power in the same way Jesus Christ is going to return. In other words, the heavens are going to be ripped open because of the power of Jesus Christ. I promise you, you're not going to miss it. You're going to see it, whether you believe or not. So in telling us that Jesus is going to come in power, Peter is proving the deity of Jesus Christ and again affirming the return of Christ. But then notice what he says secondly about uh, Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus will receive honor and glory. Again, look at verse 17. He says, for when he received honor and glory. Let's pause right there. We here in this moment from Peter see that Christ, we, know we see Christ's exalted status, but we also see his heavenly radiance as he returns. Again, this is repetition pointing us, again, both to the return of Jesus Christ, but then reminding us of the deity of Christ. So again, go back to our analogy. Heaven's ripped open and you're seeing Christ. You're seeing him, but you're seeing him in his glory. You're seeing him in his majesty. You're seeing what what we saw prophesied in Isaiah 6, what we read about later in Revelation chapter 7 and 9. You're going to see him, and all you're going to be able to say in that moment is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thirdly, Peter teaches us at this moment of transfiguration that we know that Jesus Christ is loved by God. Notice his words in verse 17. He says, And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. What a great name. And the majestic glory spoke and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Pay attention to this passage because in this passage we have a heavenly expression of the deep and abiding love that God the Father has for the Son. This moment witnessed by Peter, attested to God's affirmation and affection for Jesus Christ, both in his person as well as in his work. Again, we are seeing the connection to God, thus revealing the deity of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can know again that Jesus will return. You see, the truth for us today is this. Christianity itself is tied to the eyewitness accounts of those who knew Jesus and walked with him. So Peter, along with the other apostles, they did not have to fabricate stories about Jesus Christ, as the false teachers claimed, because they walked with him in real life. In fact, shortly after the ascension of Christ, as we see the church birth and multiplied, we witness as the majority of apostles were martyred for their faith. In fact, history tells us that hundreds upon hundreds, even thousands of believers were tortured and killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And the question I have to ask you this moment is this, why would thousands of people, thousands of people die for a lie? What do you stand to gain? Nothing. That would be completely unprecedented. And yet, here we are thousands of years later, and what's happening? The name of Jesus Christ is still being proclaimed. 
Today, we sit in a church at the ends of the earth, according to Acts chapter 1, where we are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. All over our community, in Tampa, in Florida, our faithful churches proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Throughout the United States and in Canada, there are churches proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Even today, throughout the world, in Scotland, in Burkina Faso, with terrorists banging on the door, there are people proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. It has to be true. And we know it to be true. You see, Christians, the eyewitness accounts of Christ should compel us to grow in godliness. It should compel us to grow in godly living and in our own holiness as we await the return of Jesus Christ. The eyewitnesses should compel us to grow in holiness as we prepare for the battles that we are going to face from a world that wants to tell us that Jesus Christ is not real. But we know the truth. Secondly, in verse 19 through 21, not only do we see the authority that comes from the eyewitnesses, but we now see the authority that comes from the word itself. And so notice what Peter teaches in verses 19 through 21. Peter teaches that the scriptures are also a credible source of authority. In fact, in verse 19, Peter refers to the word as the prophetic word. Verse 20, the prophecy of scripture. And then again in verse 21, the prophecy. In other words, Peter is simply talking about the word of God. Peter is now magnifying the supernatural origin and nature of God's holy word. In fact, to finish out verse 19, he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, meaning that the word itself is far superior in authority than the eyewitness accounts or the personal experiences can ever be. In other words, according to Peter, who was a witness to Jesus Christ, he says, when it comes to God's law, when it comes to authority, when it comes to knowing how we should now live, when it comes to doctrinal statements and beliefs and convictions that we should have, even the doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ, we have a book for that. And that book is the Word of God, and it is the sole authority. Now again, I imagine all of us as Christians know this. In fact, I've seen several of my brothers and sisters walking around with a shirt that says, we have a book for that. And I'm like, yes and amen, affirm, fully. We do have a book, but why would this be so important for us today? Because we know that to be true. Well, how often do we find ourselves in conversations with people who say, well, I think Jesus said this, or I think Jesus meant that, and what they said cannot be found in Scripture at all. Or they say things like, well, I feel like the Word of God says this. Or I feel like the Word says that, and yet they don't ever give a direct quote from what the Word of God says. I mean, can I just, can I just say something as gracefully and as gently as I can without, without trying to step on too many toes? Satan himself can create feelings. Satan can create experiences that can manipulate circumstances in our lives. So here's the truth that we need to hold on to. The objective constant of Scripture must be seen on a higher plane of authority than that of our own personal experiences. In other words, simply saying, well, the way we've done it before is this. 
Or simply saying, well, that's not how we've done it before, falls well short of the authority of the Word of God. Our concern as believers should solely be focused on the Word and how we are growing in our holiness according to the Word. We continue in our text in verse 20 and 21. Peter speaks of the supernatural origin of Scripture. In fact, in verse 20, we see that Scripture is authoritative. In verse 21, he gives us the why. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because I literally just saw uh, a newscast that was talking about that we don't know, nor can we attest to the authority of the Word of God. And they said, and I quote, because Scripture was written by men. Well, there's a problem. Scripture was not simply written by men. The authority of the books were not determined by man at some sort of special council meeting. That's not how that went. Thus, we cannot now make Scripture say whatever it is we deem it to say or whatever it is we want it to say. No, God is the source of the Word, not man. Thus, the Word says what God says, and therefore mankind is, in, is not in control at all. Sure, we, we can attempt to interpret the Bible the way we want in order to misuse Scripture. We can attempt to use the Bible to abuse the Word for our own points or our own personal gain, but at the end of days, it still doesn't mean that our interpretation is correct. You see, as God's people, we have to hold fast to the Word of God. We have to hold tightly to the Word of God, and not just for the sake of knowledge, but so that we can combat false teachers when Scripture is taken out of context. You see, we cannot twist the Word of God in order to meet our own agenda or justify living out our own twisted lives. In fact, because of God's authority over the Word, we can be assured of what the Word says now about the second coming of Christ, and we can know, according to the Word, that Christ will indeed return, and that moment is true and will happen the way the Word of God says it will, because the Word of God is in the will of God. Praise be to God. Thus, every spoken word of the Bible was written by God and therefore is perfect. It is without mistake as he is perfect. So Christian, as God's people chosen, dearly loved, let us submit ourselves to God's word, seeing that when the word speaks of the return of Christ, we can live in hope of knowing that he will indeed return. What a glorious day that will be. In fact, I love what G.L. Green says about this point. He says, obeying Scripture isn't a good thing to do, but rather it's the right thing to do. You see, God knows that we need to be reminded of the gospel. God knows that we needed to be reminded of the truth. This is why we see Peter giving us the truth of the return of Christ, giving us this truth of repetition. You see, through witness and the word, we see truth come to life, and it does so with authority that is found in the word of God that has been given to us by God. And so Peter knew that the believers needed to be reminded of this point. He knew that they needed plays to run, 
plays to be perfected, a perfect game plan in order to refute the false teachers and therefore defend the return of Christ. Knowing that at the end of the days, it wasn't about them receiving the glory, but rather it was about God being glorified. So through the significance of Christ's return, as well as the sources that prove that he is coming, Peter has equipped the believers with the truth needed to combat the false teaching that they were now experiencing. And so like the church that Peter writes to, may we, through repetition, be reminded of the timeless truth that we can hope in, that we can long for, and that creates a passion to faithfully live out our days for him. May we be reminded again and again and again that as believers in Christ, we are called to never forget Christ's return. Wake up, church. He is coming. Wake up, church. He is coming in power. He is coming in glory and honor. He is the beloved. And he will return. So I don't know where you are today or what it is that you're going through, but can I just encourage you for a moment, wherever that may be, you may be here today struggling, hurting. You may be here dealing with a lack of sleep. Thanks be to God, because one day Christ will return and our sorrows will be no more. Stand on that promise. Stand on that truth. Christ is coming again. Let's pray together.